Hello, and welcome to episode three of Still Unbelievable. I'm Andrew Knight, and today is December 14th, 2018, and we will be talking about the recent episode on Still Unbelievable between Jared McKenna and James White and the controversy around the statement of social justice, the statement on social justice, and the gospel. I'm excited today because we have a uh, a different mix than we've had for the first couple of episodes. We actually have four hosts today. And first of all, I'd like to introduce Sarah. Sarah is uh, one of the authors from the book Still Unbelievable. She is a regular contributor to the discussion boards on uh, on Premier Christian Radio. And she's coming to us from a secret lair where I'm most envious because she can step outside her front door and snow ski. Uh, Sarah, welcome. Hello, how's it going? Uh, it, it's going great, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. Also with me today is a voice that some of you will recognize because he does the heavy lifting over on Ask an Atheist Anything. He's the primary host there. He's also the author of the first chapter in the book, Still Unbelievable. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and I'm happy to have him here. He's Matthew Taylor. Hello, Matthew. Good evening to you, sir. And also, uh, I have a... Um, privilege to have uh, a lifelong friend, the primary author of the book, Still Unbelievable, the podcast host of Skeptics and Seekers, and a deep thinker in his own regard as a professional author. He's David Johnson. Hey, Dave. And, uh, you know, the more uh, now that you say it, it has been quite an honor for you. Um, <laughs> I was going to add I need to warn guru you as well. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I lied about that, friend. <laughs> so, uh, so, David, you wrote what I think was quite an insightful article on the statement uh, on the statement of social justice in the gospel, and I'd like to, because there are four of us, and because our time will run short on a Friday evening, dive right into this conversation: why the statement on social justice and the gospel. Uh, is controversial, and talk about especially where the framers of this document come from in regard to uh, their stance on what the Bible is and why people that read this document should be so concerned. So if you're ready, take it away. Okay. Uh, So first, just a programming note, uh, and I I hate to interrupt the the flow of this to go backward to a programming note. So this was uh, called out as episode three and had Andrew just said another episode of uh, still unbelievable. I wouldn't be making this note, but now that it is written in stone, that it's episode three in all likelihood, this will come second in the feed after episode one and episode two will come along sometime later next week. And then people are going to be wondering. (laughs) That's right. That is absolutely right. Uh, The truth is it's my fault. The editing is out of order. Uh, So you will see this episode, the, the December 14th episode before you see uh, episode two and uh, you have me to blame uh, or to thank depending on which episode you like the most. So <laughs> now, now, back to, uh, now back to social justice and the gospel. Social justice and the gospel. So um, I did have a lot of things t- to say uh, planned for this, and I 
I want to back away, step away from some of it, and I, I will integrate some of this into it, but I know that uh, Matthew has done his homework, as usual, and uh, Sarah has uh, done quite a bit uh, of, of research, and uh, she's, she's got quite a, quite a few things to say that are worth saying. And so I'm going to fold some of what uh, I had to say into the conversation, because I want to make sure that there's time to get uh, what, I, what I think is more important conversation in uh, than than just the things that I said, but among the things that we talk about, uh, hopefully there will be some discussion on the term intersectionality, which uh, which has the framers of the statement uh, quite bothered. Uh, what is intersectionality? Intersectionality is basically the markers of discrimination uh, that. Uh, people bear and are used against them uh, in in compound ways. So an example of that would be a black woman may suffer dis- uh, racial discrimination in the workplace. But because she's a woman, she also has a higher chance of uh, suffering gender uh, discrimination in the workplace. If she's an older woman, she might suffer age discrimination in the workplace. If she's trans, well, that that sends the discrimination meter uh, through the roof. But all of these things are uh, things that we must consider uh, in in our lives if we're going to make laws and have rules that. Uh, end up being fair for everyone, then we have to consider inter- intersectionality um, as as a part of that. So, are there those then in the statement on uh, social justice and the gospel? Are there those people who uh, see intersectionality and the fight for social justice as something other than a good thing? I mean, is there is there a notion then that? somehow we can ignore intersectionality or that intersectionality should be uh, uh, dismissed as a, as a way to evaluate uh, what people experience in their lives and, and uh, you know, and, and create a, a social framework of justice that we can all live by. I mean, it seems to me like intersectionality sounds like a good thing. What is the problem? It's it's certainly a, a good thing that we need to bear in mind as we consider uh, laws and policies and and fairness. We keep in mind um, it, it, things like accidental discrimination. You know, sometimes we have policies that are accidentally discriminatory. Why? Because we didn't consider the effects. Uh, on minorities and, and such. And so your question, uh, the framers of the statement, their views on intersectionality is that intersectionality is is an evil notion, that it is counterproductive to the gospel, and that one should never consider uh, a person's race, gender, um, sexual orientation, things like that. They should, we should completely ignore the markers of discrimination and whereas it, it may feel like, oh, yes, you see, they're colorblind. They're ignoring race. That sounds like a good thing. It's not actually a good thing because what they're suggesting um, is that, you know, if if you feel like, uh, you know, that you're a victim of racism, uh, 
then their response is shut up. There's no such thing as race. Um, and so they never have to consider uh, the markers of discrimination in their behavior and uh, in their culture. And they think that when the church is asked to do that, the church is asked to do something beyond which the gospel dictates. More than that, it's anti-gospel, and um, they're very, very much against it. When you hear, when you hear the read the statement with that frame of mind, it just sounds like a racist manifesto. It sounds like something that a hate group uh, like the Proud Boys uh, or alt right would would write. Can I can I add on intersectionality? Is I understood it as being a framework, a way of analysing. It's not actually something that's good or bad. It's just a way of looking at people in their place in society, how they feel connected, how they stand vis-a-vis others. Um, it's to do with looking at how they feel with regards to power, oppression, justice, mm-hmm. um, how they identify, where their social standing is, etc. in terms of race, age, gender, class, all that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a framework. It's just a way of looking at, at people and, and yeah, being aware of some of the things they might have come across. And I think what MacArthur's worried about in particular is that by defining various classes, you're actually going away from the idea of unity. You know, there is no race, there is no difference in Christ, etc. So um, it's all about uh, one body, one unity, and that's what we should be concentrating on. And intersectionality actually detracts from that. I think that's what his concern is. Which that is exactly his concern. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's. I think what's important though to recognize is that if you go back from MacArthur all the way to the Apostle Paul. Uh, at the time he said, neither slave nor free, he was returning slaves to their masters. So, you know, you, you, could, you could suggest that his statement was an anti-intersectionality idea, but his, his translation, his definition of what that meant in practice was that stay, slaves stay slaves, and and that is that is how MacArthur and his crew are viewing it too. Yes, we we think that intersectionality detracts from the message of Christianity, which is to say, um, groups that are uh, disadvantaged should stay disadvantaged. <laughs> and so we don't we don't need to look at that. We don't need to think about that because in Christ, your disadvantage doesn't matter. Okay. So is there a way uh, that the we were all Christians at one point, right? So, so we've all uh, we've all walked the Christian walk. Um, is there a way to read the Bible and build the statement on social justice as it's uh, as it's written? How do you how do you get to the statement on just, uh, social justice? So, so let me let me round off the things that I had planned to say with this, and I will leave everything else to discussion because I, I think it addresses the question that you put out there. So the, the other piece of this, to, to understand where this is coming from, is found very close to the, um, very close to the, the beginning. And uh, let, me just, let me just read that. I had it pulled up a moment ago. And I have got it pulled up again. Here we go. Hey. 
Yeah, I, I, I said that I was ready, right? I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, okay. it's I've got it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not editing this. Um, we, can, <laughs> we affirm that the Bible is God's word breathed out by him. It is inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true. What we must believe and what is right, what we, uh, how we must live. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is scripture alone. So at the end of the day, Christians are fighting over, at least one of the things they're fighting over, is how we should view scripture. And Christians have been having this battle with each other um, for ages. And uh, where people like us, former Christians, uh, uh, skeptics, uh, agnostics, atheists, uh, come in is we don't we don't view the Bible at all in these terms. Christians differ on how they view the Bible, but when we see a statement that begins, "All of your ethical values must come from this book," uh, and everything you know about how you must live and what you must think about what is right is based on this, and all laws and precepts that matter are based on this. This comes directly out of the, the mouth of God. Those, those types of things. We immediately recoil. And I think that this is, this is, in fact, where this statement is coming from, from an ultra-conservative, literalist uh, view, a, a view of infallibility and inerrancy um, of, of the worst of the Bible, and that's what they want us to base our sense of ethics on. We cannot do it. And so when you ask me if, if, I can, if I can somehow craft this statement in my mind where I could agree with it, there is no part where I can get on board. I can't, I can't begin to give a nod of assent uh, to a statement with this as a foundation. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's another example, really, because the Christians have a closed canon. Nobody's added to it for 2,000 years. So this is just an attempt. Uh, you know, they're having difficulty to move with the flow, move with the way culture is going and uh, the changes that are happening, some some very fast and some in the last five years. I think that's particularly why MacArthur, he's, uh, MacArthur who was behind the statement, uh, issued some um, sermons, I believe, and then as a result of those kind of moved towards kind of formalizing it but almost that they're, they're almost trying to rewrite the bible here they're almost trying to reinvent things that you either either don't need to be said or are still out of date but just because they're stating them again doesn't make them any more relevant but that's i think that's what they're they're trying to do some of it's quite obvious ideas that you know we are made in the image of god we all know that we don't need a new statement to tell you that you've had two thousand years of of christianity so it's 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 obvious a lot of the things in there are obvious and things that we know anyway or they're just so out of step with with culture that people are just ignoring them and 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 dismissing it really so I think that's what they, they've tried. I think they just—it's just, it's just a, a reaction of maybe a conservative, um, well, very, very conservative mindset, which. You know, studies show that people who are conservative generally have um, more fear, have um, a diff- less resiliency to complexity and nuance and ideas and things that which automatic. I mean, some of it's brain wiring, but, you know, it makes them intolerant um, because they have a harder time to deal with complexity and ambiguity. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's fear there and they're, and they're just trying to kind of gather the troops and, and rewrite some of it that's, you know, obvious, obvious things. But um, Well, there is some, there's a lot about brain wiring that's sort of wrong with this statement, isn't there? Because another, uh, one of the areas that this statement um, impinges on uh, most strongly and most directly is, uh, is the LGBTQI community. Right. Yes. And and there's the idea in this document that um, that God created man and woman. There are only two genders. Uh, the proper pattern for human relationships is one man and one woman together forever. And and that is not only wrong from a social justice perspective, right? But it's it's wrong from a genetics perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I think. We should question, Sarah, I know that you've got uh, friends in the LGBTQI community. I do, too. Mm. But even without them, right, even if I didn't have friends that would benefit from social justice and who are harmed by this kind of social justice in the gospel statement, uh, these people like, uh, like James White are just wrong on the science of human yes. genetics. Yes, absolutely. You can see it in his in his first line. He's wrong. He says, uh, "God, uh, we affirm that God created mankind, male and female, and that is this is divinely determined distinction, which is good, proper, and to be celebrated. Male and femaleness are biologically determined at conception, no less, which isn't true. I think all fetuses start off as female anyway, don't they, for a while, and then actually they, they yeah. do, Every and there's uh, a hormone change so, that, exactly. that creates right." And, and it's just he's just even denying that there's things like intersex, which is, you know, you can take a photo if you need to prove it's like, you know, it's uh, it exists. It's uh, there's people that are of indeterminate sex and there's people who and third sex is not a new thing. It's been with us for 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 generations. It's in the Indian uh, cultures. It's in uh, yeah, all, all sorts of uh, places in history. The eunuchs in the eunuchs in the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. It's debatable whether what they exactly were. And so he just denies that these there's just male, female, end of story. And so just in that statement alone, if you are trans, you are completely, you are now, you do not exist. You do not exist yeah. as a as a category, even a problem category. You just don't exist at all. It's just, uh, it's, it's incredibly offensive. Yeah, it's right. incredibly offensive. And, and I would like to point out to anyone listening that even if you, even if you think there are only two genders, and and you only accept gross anatomical traits as the way we define gender. There would still be four ways to practice those combinations, uh, even with only two genders. So that would be heterosexual relationships, so male and female, male-male relationships, female-female relationships. And then you might think that gets us to the end, but it doesn't, because there are people... Uh, who simply are not biologically driven to have those relationships. And Mm -hmm. so even if you think God made every child male and female, which we don't actually think is the case, right? (laughs) Even if you think God made Adam and Eve, we're not actually, we we don't actually think is, even when we were Christians, I don't think any of us thought, oh, well, God made the baby. Well, no, we, we actually understood that biology made the baby, right? And so there are four ways to practice human sexuality with two genders only. 
Let me let me just say we have a distinct lack of British accent um, in this podcast. <laughs> can can someone help us out? Well, I I'd like to rewind back to this first statement that you read out, and it's um, reading at it. It's it's very it's very literal. It's very definite, and it's lacking in an awful lot of nuance. And uh, what on earth does the phrase, the Bible is the final authority for determining what is true, mean in reality. Yeah, we've had this discussion about, about sex, etc. But um, let, let's be petty. Let's take it out to other things. Can the Bible tell me if it is true that a tomato is a fruit, for example? The Bible, it says here, is the final authority. Where are we going to take this, this, this line? You know, or is it true that I have authority to deny my wife that she can walk to church on a Sunday morning if she chooses to? She's a Christian, I'm not. Um, is, is it true that I'm allowed to do that? You know, there are some really petty nuances we could take out here into those, the daily Those are life. petty nuances. I know that you think you're trying hard to find petty nuance to make your point, but you have not done it yet. The, the, oh, uh, fair enough. Yeah, the thing about the tomatoes, for instance... Um, people will argue to this day that the mustard seed is the smallest, uh, the smallest seed in, uh, in the world because Jesus said it was, and I don't care what you come yeah. up with. They, yes. they actually think that way. So yeah, if, if you're looking for a petty example, dig deeper. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Okay. The beer that I'm drinking now is the best beer in the world. There you go. There you go. There's, there's Petty for you. Um, but, yeah, Jesus you turned can't... water into wine. Best, <laughs> best wine ever. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. Ah, sorry. Uh, but you, you can't throw out a statement like the Bible is the final authority for determining what is true and leave it at that. Because there are, the Bible is not a sufficiently complex book in, or, or, how, or manual or however you want to describe it for going to for every little thing that we want to determine what is true or not. You know, we don't go to the Bible when it comes to sending a spacecraft around several planets and off beyond Pluto to take a few photos. The Bible doesn't feature in any of the science that we do for doing that. And there is a lot of science that needs to go into doing that kind of thing and a lot of technology. The Bible doesn't feature in anywhere on that. And yet what we need is truth in order to achieve those those feats. So that so I think that's that a sentence on its own is I nearly swore then is just not reliable, frankly. Uh, and furthermore, I, does it say anywhere that it, it, it is inerrant? I mean, I I don't think it actually even claims that it is for itself, does it? The Bible. There's no saying I am an infallible book because for starters, it was a collection of books over time, etc., written by different authors. Uh, you know, so there's no one person that's at some point said, right, this is infallible, unless it was the church fathers. But it's not actually in the Bible itself. I mean, it says it's God breathed, but that's it. Uh, there's nothing, nothing more than that. So where are they yeah, getting uh, this claim? Something uh, is somewhere in in the Gospels or one of the New Testament letters about it being good for teaching and rebuking mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, that kind of thing, which probably is about the closest it gets. Right. Yes. I think There's you've nothing. got um, John seventeen seventeen that uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've got Psalm 119, 105 that says, Thy word is light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. You have mm-hmm. Paul's admonition in Acts to the 
uh, to the Thessalonians that says the Bereans were more, no, uh, more noble because they search, search the scripture daily. So, so there are all these allusions mm-hmm. to, to this notion, but I, I think that's right. I don't remember a place um, where the Bible actually claims inerrancy. And um, uh, so, you know. Well, it, it would go back to the one in Timothy, though. Uh, if I were trying to make the case, all scriptures uh, given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for uh, 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 teaching, rebuking, correction, uh, rebuke, instruction, righteousness, uh, so the man of God may be perfect uh, uh, and uh, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And that's, that's the thing. If it's, if there's failure in it somewhere, then it, you know, if there's an error in it somewhere, then that error place is not then good for uh, God breathe. And it's not good for instruction in righteousness. And it does not make you thoroughly furnished in every good works. And so there's no place in it where they can say, well, it's this, you know, it's, it's inerrant except for this piece over here, which is garbage. Uh, because that would, that would um, nullify uh, this passage in this idea. But, I mean, for the fact that it's good for certain things uh, and a lamp onto your feet, yes, I mean, you could say all Holy Scripture could have that role. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing in it is automatically correct. I mean, I, I don't know. So I'm not, I'm not here to defend that idea. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just trying to explain how people who have that idea. How people come to it. Right. Yeah. See, I grew yeah, up in yeah. that idea, so I could, I could preach this sermon for the next hour. Um, and we I, might even, <laughs> I mean, we could say the same thing about the writings of Marcus Aurelius, right? I mean, we, we might all... Uh, if you've read Marcus Aurelius, you might come to those writings and and feel very strongly that there's a good ethical guide in mm-hmm. in those writings. So the question then is, how do Christians that defend this document on social justice and the gospel well, come? The, yeah, it comes from God. That's Go the idea. It's you know Marcus Aurelius. That's you know smart guy maybe, but all the scripture. That comes directly from the mouth of God. Notice it's God breathed. You know, it's it's a way of saying it comes directly from the mouth of God. You can't really argue with that, right? Uh, although I might argue with the notion that uh, an entirely unembodied uh, being could breathe. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it, it comes directly out nice. of the mouthless mouth of God. <laughs> so, you don't have to understand it. You just have to preach it. If you if 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 you subtract from it even one bit, then your name will be subtracted from the book of life. And if you add even one little bit to it, then the plagues which are written in this book will be added unto you. This is this is not just how they think. This is what the book says. They feel like they have to think this way. Right. And so to, to sort of retract that a little bit, Sarah pointed out how this happens. There are certain people who are predisposed to take these kinds of sayings, find comfort in their certainty, whether they're certain or not, right? They, they don't actually have to be true. They can be felt to be true. And people will act on that apparent certainty. And I think it's fair to say that that's what the, the framers and signers of this, of this social justice statement have done. Yeah, it, it doesn't even cross their mind that um, 
people outside of their bubble might have a, a valid idea about ethics and how to live. So, Sarah, why do then uh, some Christians disagree with this with the statement as it's written? And by the way, we'll link to this statement in the show notes for for those who want to read this and get a deeper background on this conversation. We can't read the entire statement here. It is way too long uh, to to include as a as a single reading. So to understand the statement more deeply, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. But Sarah, you had some thoughts on why it would be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, heard, I mean, I read the same article that uh, Matthew's just sent to us from Ryan uh, Burton King, uh, who <laughs> was sort of t- taking it down piece by piece. But I also listened to a, um, a debate with a pastor who's called Tabiti, and I'm going to say his name one time and not again, Anyabwili, I think is his name. Um, and uh, yeah, so he was it. just... A, yeah, he rings a bell, I think. Tabiti and We were just talking about him uh, the other day, weren't we, Andrew? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That's so, what about. He, I mean, he made the point that, you're, as you say, it's um, nobody, the people who've uh, framed the statement, like MacArthur, um, are people who haven't changed in their views in 50 years. They have been consistent over decades as to what they believe. And so, you know, those neurological pathways are well-trodden. Uh, they're not likely to change now, but they he's his feeling was that you know they've thrown in quite charged words at quite a charged time. Uh, some of the issue is with the definitions of words like intersectionality. I mean, I'd never even heard of it until now, but um, you know, so that's just a framework. But they are saying this is an evil thing. It's creating new victim classes. Um, because now you've got, you know, it's I'm a trans black lady or whatever, or I'm a, uh, you know, of this age uh, group. or So he was saying, you know, all this intersectionality, it's creating more and more victim classes. And the big problem for him was that people um, start to blame God for their condition, which right. I found a bit Heavens odd. Heavens forfend. Um, um, you know, that, that the God moving the chess pieces around the board would be uh, blamed, be blamed. for the position of the chess pieces. <laughs> yeah. But for him, the, the big thing is that it's taking emphasis uh, uh, from repenting. This is the big thing for him. It's all about yes. you need to be repenting. Stop doing this group victimization. Uh, you're taking away individual responsibility for your problems and your sin. Um, so and the, all this is kind of dividing the church. But I mean, I found that a bit weird as for a Calvinist anyway, because I mean, frankly, whether you sin or not, if you're destined to hellfire kindling, then you're a bit stuffed anyway. So I'm not sure why he's so bothered about it, about any of it anyway. But for him, it's all detracting from repenting and soul saving and preaching the gospels because we're actually, heaven forbid, helping people in these kind of oppressed states and fighting for their rights. Um, so, And then there was some discussion about whether he used the word social justice in the same way as we mean it, because you would think that um, social justice and Christianity kind of are quite good bedfellows. That's something that they would mm-hmm. go hand in hand. It's kind of it's about Absolutely. helping the oppressed and, and that kind of thing. But he was he's talking about social 
social justice, more like in the term of socialism and um, it having connotations of um, uh, redistribution of wealth and economic kind of redistribution, that kind of thing. So, And I wondered if that was maybe an American-UK thing for us. I, I get the impression that even being called a socialist in the States is almost like a slur. I mean, you know, you, oh, do, yeah. you wouldn't want to... Yeah. It is because of the... So to put a little flesh around that, the reason is because of the 1950s and 60s, uh, all the way up through the 80s and the, and the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So American school children uh, who eventually grow into American adults uh, poorly understand the nature of economics versus government. And so the socialists, those, those Soviet Union people, those Russians, uh, they were socialists. Mm-hmm. And in order, I read a book about this recently, which is why I'll go on just for a second for one paragraph cool. about this. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, when we were in the space race, and the Soviet Union was the first country to put a satellite in orbit, and there was a, there was a fight to gain our orbitals, right? Um, the Soviets were the bad guys. And we taught that for a couple of generations. And the reason that socialism, you know, the reason that calling someone a socialist in the United States is bad today uh, is only because of the history. If you called somebody a socialist today, they wouldn't really understand the historical context. But the, the historical context goes back to the 1950s, where the, where the Soviets were the bad guys. And by the way, whether they are or not, social justice would imply that we shouldn't use those labels from a previous generation that we don't even understand. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we could, we could drop that, because it may be, uh, okay, off off the deep end, guys. So apologies. It may be that there are notions in social systems that are uh, in socialist systems that are laudable, but you'd have a hard time getting that conversation started in the states. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, so that's sorry. that's yeah. That's what you get. You know, it's pretty much being called a commie, and you're exactly. just. It's a horrific thing to even be uh, considered as a socialist. Whereas for us, it just. I mean, Matthew, you can correct me if you're you're wrong, but France is a socialist country in the sense of, yeah, they're they're fighting for the common man, for the guy working in the in the factory in the fields. Um, it's about redistributing wealth and not allowing people to become ridiculously rich and and creating an elite. It's that that's just the ideology behind it. It's nothing particular bad. I would say it's very Christian at its base in some ways. So, well, in many ways. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think some of that might be so, you know, whether it's not vibing that much, this statement in the UK, maybe just to do with definitions and language um, not being appropriate because MacArthur's meaning it in terms of socialism and uh, a bit more in that respect. And we're taking it as social justice, as in caring for people, doing the right thing to the right people at the right time and and, and helping them forward. But so I think that that was another issue I picked up on. Um, and then the other thing Tabiti said, um, Anya Wabili, if I'm going to say his name again, um, um, he said that the thing with the statement, and I, again, you don't really pick up on it until um, he's yeah pointed this out. I thought it's quite a good um, good thing to have uh, noted. But he says what the guys are doing there are just trying to say, right, okay, uh, there's one body, there's unity. If we just if we just lay down our doctrine, if we just lay down our definitions, if we just state the law and uh, say that we're right. And that's it. The the rest follows. He's just saying, you know, there is one man, there is one woman. 
therefore, once we state this, the problem of transgender people or gay people goes away. Um, it waves away the issue that there's any racism in evangelical circles. It denies it's an issue. It just claims we're one body. So it, it erases the victim category, doesn't want to pretend there's any divisions. They don't exist. So they're just isolating themselves from the problem and not actually um, agreeing that you have to work with it and that maybe unity um, is something you wrestle with. It's it's worked out practically. It's um, something that you have to fight for. You know, even in the Bible, it says, you know, you have to forgive 77 times seven. Um, you you know, that's and that's what some of the push is against that, that I noticed that, the you know, some people are saying it's not actually giving you any practicalities. It's just saying if we state these things are right and this is the way it is and just doctrine, 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 then the rest will follow. And of course, that's just out of step with how humanity works and and what's even going on that you. Um, it's just not entering into the suffering that people have have had in these different uh, categories of uh, intersectionality, and uh, it's not engaging with their pain, with their difficulties, with anything like that. So I thought that was quite an interesting take on the on the way it's been phrased, and I think that's a fair fair point. And the final thing you said is, you know, what posture does it create? This whole statement um it's fairly defensive um and it's either stating very obvious things so it just means people are completely unengaged because it's like yeah we're made in the image of god well if you're christian you're obviously going to think that's perfectly uh, acceptable thing to say or it just makes you shrink back and withdraw because it's slightly slightly you know uh, offensive in many ways whereas a statement like this should sort of help to be leaning into the problem uh, with the gospel, though he, this guy was saying, you know, into the problem of suffering and oppression and uh, injustice and, and that sort of thing. So I thought it was quite a, an interesting take on it, because initially I was a little bit baffled as to why anybody had a problem with the social justice being, uh, I mean, I just thought it was a good thing. Why was everybody getting all, all uptight about it? Why were some Christians fighting against it? What was this um particular statement about and I have to say in the episode of Unbelievable uh, we just had this nice chap Jared work, working with the um, the refugees and poor people and you know it didn't seem to be anything to be getting uptight about um, and I, I don't think necessarily the pitch of the two people were, were right because James White was there to, do, to, um, to defend uh, his so social justice statement of which he forms part of some of the founding framers um, and well, Jared know was just a good chap doing good things. <laughs> right. So, and, so and it was a bit lost on me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think this Ryan guy should have been on Unbelievable. Sure. Yeah. 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 Someone to actually to fight back the statement, statement by statement. Which actually they had somebody who was fighting for social justice in the good sense and in almost the gospel sense of the word and somebody just defending the statement. But it, it never really... They never really meshed in terms of an argument because they, they didn't were talk about fighting. statements enough, did they? No, no. Well, and isn't there a danger here? Because Matthew was saying to me before this call, uh, I think day before yesterday, if I remember correctly, that one of the actual demonstrable negatives of statements like this is that there are movements toward uh, nationalism and uh, and far right conservatism and uh, maybe even a, a similar kind of alt right movement going on in the UK uh, now. Mm -hmm. So we we see this rise in uh, rise in hatred in the United States. In fact, I saw a poll. Uh, sorry, a CDC. Um, set of statistics, so the Center for St Centers for Disease Control, they put out a statement um, within the last couple of days, the gun death in the United States 
is at a 40-year high this year. Crazy. And and so, Matthew, have you seen that in the in the UK? Are, are you exposed to this in this increased sort of tribalism and that kind of thing? It's. I'm not seeing it in everyday life, but I am seeing it on the unbelievable Facebook group and on the forums. The the enabling of um, conservative uh, Christians to be so entrenched in their protectionism. Um, and it, it's not new. It's been going on for a year or, or more. But the number of people I see on the unbelievable Facebook page who profess Christianity but are very much um, uh, not not supportive of social justice and um, very much protect who, who, is, who is good, you know, or rather pre-labeling who is good, who is acceptable, and utterly rejecting everybody who doesn't fit. And gender is, is the biggest casualty. So uh, let, me, let me jump in. If I can, I want to swing or swing backward a little bit to Sarah's um, idea that this could just be a matter of, of language. And I want to assure you that it is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know exactly what they're saying. And when they talk about social justice, they mean what you think that it should mean. So I grew up in a denomination where we had no truck with this social justice nonsense. Uh <laughs> And so, you know, we, we meant exactly what you mean by it. Um, and the, the fear, and it's spelled out a little bit in the, in the document, the fear is that social issues become wrapped up and synonymous with the gospel. So for them, the way they frame it, the only thing that's important is the salvific gospel. And everything else detracts from it. And this is why they do not care if you are a slave or if you are a woman who is, you know, beaten daily by your uh, brood of a husband or if you are a uh, minority who is, uh, you know, not given in, uh, proper education. Uh, you know, they don't care about these. They literally don't care about these things institutionally. The only thing that matters to them is that you learn the right doctrine and that you get the right baptism and you get saved. And so when you pile on things like social justice onto the, the gospel, you are detracting from it in their mind. So it, it is, in fact, a real threat, this, this squishy idea. And also, it's, a, it's, a, it's liberalism. So they, uh, it, you know, one of the things that, conservatives hate above all else is a liberal liberalism because you're watering down the gospel. And so this has always been kind of one of those dividing lines between liberals and fundamentalists, liberals, you know, with their bleeding hearts, you know, instead of preaching uh, that people ought to repent from their sins, you know, they're giving them soup and making them feel good about their status. No, no. You're in your condition because you're a sinner, and what you first and foremost need to do is turn your heart to Jesus. Um, I just wanted to read a a line out of this document. Specifically, we're deeply concerned that values borrowed from secular culture are currently undermining Scripture, and they give a number of areas where it is. But that's, that's how they think. 
And so they, they do believe that this idea of, of warm and fuzzy social justice is watering down the hard love truth of the gospel. Wow. Can wow. I just pick up there just, just for a second? Because I know that, I, well, I don't know. I think most of us have watched some of MacArthur's sermons now. They're, they're actually on the statement, so, statement for Social Justice website. They are literally gag-inducing. They are. And so here's just one place in his ranting that is out of touch with, uh, with how we conduct our lives now. The American College of Pediatricians has come out recently and uh, renewed their objection to corporal punishment. They have gone all the way to the wall and said, there is no hitting a child that is constructive or good for the child. However, in the question and answer video that is uh, on this social justice website, MacArthur defends corporal punishment of a child as a way to, uh, to force learning. Inflict uh, Thank you. It, was, it, right. it, was, in, it wasn't discipline. In, in, <laughs> inflict. Uh, oh, I, I should have written it down. <laughs> I, I just, what I'm saying is. Slap them about to get it in their brain. That is exactly what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> but, the, but the reason he, kids are running wow. amok is because parents uh, have abrogated the responsibility to, to inflict uh, the the appropriate knowledge, yeah, yeah. the learning and, and on he them. Goes, he goes further. He actually says, and all of this, I'll, here's the bow. I'll go ahead and put the bow on it. All of this is fear-mongering to push an agenda. All of his sermons are fear-mongering to push this agenda. But he goes further after this corporal punishment of children's thing, and of children thing, and he says, look, we've got police for a reason. Well, Without being uh, a, a black male or black female in the United States, I dare say that um, that minority populations in the United States think of our police forces differently. But but he says if we don't stop social justice, if we don't stop the ability for people uh, to demonstrate, for people to riot, we will have to declare martial law in the United States. So. Yes, his view is that social justice creates an environment where we need martial law to bring people back under control. In fact, if I can quote from that sermon, we accept the authority that is uh, in power. We know Mm -hmm. that it is ordained by God, and if you start tearing into that authority, you weaken that authority, you will have increasing anarchy, you will go back to a primitive kind of society where we can barely survive. And mm. I, I can tell you now, this is one of those dog-whistling points, and um, you, can, you can say I'm crazy, but I'm not here. This is, a, this is one of those things where we're in the I'm glad culture. you added here there, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> this is one of these places where Andrew and I are inside of a culture uh, that may not have spilled outside. But we have a problem in... Uh, America right now, where police are, it, it feels like some days are just willy-nilly shooting black men. Mm-hmm. They're just shooting them. Uh, th- these men it doesn't are, feel that are, way. Are they, unarmed. They are. 
there in in one or two cases it's a black man that is armed but has a carry license <laughs> um it, it they're in just north charleston south carolina a black man had his back turned to a police officer mm. the police officer drew his sidearm the guy had not broken a law he was running to keep from getting killed the cop shot him in the back eight times and then planted a weapon on him Mm. to make it look as if this young black man was committing a crime. And the only thing that sent that cop to prison was a bystander with a cell phone. Here's, here's the thing that, uh, you know, you, you listen to that and you say, well, that's obviously a rogue cop. We hear stories of this, you know, a couple, three times a year and have been doing so for how long have we been talking about this, Andrew? Less five, six years we have been um, talking about this most prom. I mean, you and I have faced this from the time we were kids on uh, on sports teams together. So for the listeners, David and I fought to be friends back in a time and a place where having friends of another race simply wasn't accepted. Yeah. It, it simply wasn't accepted. It wasn't real However, easy. <laughs> we have um, – we have been talking about this. Uh, I, I'll just put a pin in the news. We have talked about this between you and I since the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman case down in Florida, where a community, uh, where a um, a neighborhood watchman killed a young black kid. I don't. I don't think he was over eighteen, if I recall. Killed the kid, and swore that he was armed, swore that he fought with him. The kid had a pack of Skittles. Yeah. That was what mm. he was armed with. Skittles and we've been talking about it. Mm. That's that's when you and I started so talking about the thing this. That makes 2011, so, maybe. Yeah, so the thing that makes us so bad is because most of these situations, uh, you know, there's, there's outrage, there's a vigil, uh, and then after a little while, there's an investigation. These are considered, eh, it was a good shoot. Police, police officer did nothing wrong. This is, this is where the real outrage comes. Mm. You know, the black communities didn't just start breaking windows and burning things down for nothing. You know, most of the black community urged uh, people to, uh, look, let the, let the law run its course. Uh, let's, let's let these, but year after year, as these things continue to happen, furthermore, there was also this sense of, well, man, that was awful. They're going to, they're going to increase training. This will never happen again. No, it, it simply escalated. And, uh, these things were considered good shoots. It's a good shoot. It's just another black man, uh, shot in the head, uh, unarmed, uh, you know, by a police officer. No big deal. Um, and this is this is the thing that has created so much um, distrust of of the police in this country, and he is making reference to this in a veiled way that you know you can't go around undermining the authority of police, uh, which is you know what some people fear that uh, has been going on, and so he pulls out the Romans. Uh, what twelve uh, passage Romans thirteen where um, you know God the the police God ordained these authorities for a reason they have the you know don't carry the power of the sword in vain and so forth and so he he chooses this moment to say that because what he's really saying is all you black people who feel like you've 
uh, you know, feel like you've got a grievance. Um, you know, we're not we're not going to bring down the system for for your petty grievance. So there's some need for social justice. Sounds like it. <laughs> and, um, Just a bit. Do you want us to send you a few bobbies? Where, <laughs> is this where? So I had to look this up because it's not a phrase I'm terribly familiar with. But is this where critical race theory? Yeah. yeah, possibly. Because when, when I looked up that phrase, because I, I needed yeah. to cause I read about it, I saw that it was about that we have to. It's about accepting that society has got fundamental racism dialed into it, and it has been there for many years, hundreds of years even, and it's going to take efforts to move it, to undo that and get rid of that, and we need to be doing something about it. Yes. So when I saw in here that, that he denies that critical race theory, among other things, yeah. is not consistent with biblical teaching, that's quite an alarm bell. Mm. And, it is. <laughs> and, and now, I can accept that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about critical race theory. Yes, it does. I, I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm sorry. It, Jesus called Gentiles dogs for Pete's sake. In his own day, out of his own mouth, he carried on the uh, marginalization of uh, what in his culture would have been minority. Yeah. So, okay. So what you're saying there is from Jesus's own mouth, we've got um, incitement to racism. So that's, that's possibly not critical race theory because that's not acknowledging that racism exists. I, I, I agree. Like, I, 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 went, I, I flew off the hammer. I'm, I'm reining myself <laughs> um, in. I'm pulling myself down by my bootstraps. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so <laughs> hopefully this point that I'm going to make is a little bit devastating. So, yeah, you, let, let's accept that the Bible doesn't acknowledge that there's such a thing as critical race theory and that racism is endemic within society. I, I can accept that. That doesn't help the Bible in any way whatsoever by acknowledging that. And then when you go back up to, we affirm that the Bible is the final authority for determining what is true, it's frankly, it is true that racism is endemic within society, not just in America, but in other countries uh, across the world, possibly every country. Um, and to even deny that. So if the Bible doesn't speak about it, but it's true, and the Bible is the source for truth, you are already in a very big problem here. So just so you know, they would not deny that uh, it's true. The part of critical race theory that they reject is that you that we need to do anything about it. So they would suggest, yeah, there's racism. We live in a fallen world, sinful world. They're, they're racist. Oh, so oh, what? Yeah, the get out clause. Ugh. Right. So that I mean, um, that's that's literally how they handle it in the document. Um by the way, and so it, part of part of what I am including in the document is some of the sermon stuff that they include as sources. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's partly what they say. Sure, we're not denying that discrimination happens, and what a what a pity it happens. But it's not our job as a church to deal with it. It's not our responsibility, um, and it has nothing to do with the gospel. Yeah, it's all about the the repenting. So. Yeah. Wow. And so That's what they what they are against is what you know churches that actually take on a responsibility to do something about it. That section that you all read where it said you know we something to the effect uh, we don't we don't believe that um, it's our responsibility to repent for things that uh, the Bible doesn't uh, declare us guilty of. 
this is what they are talking about. There are two things directly that I believe that they're talking about. One of them is uh, in in the country a few years ago, there was a movement for uh, white churches, uh, white Christians to repent of the racism of their forefathers and and not just repent of it, but uh, change the the setting because white racism has created a setting of segregated churches. And so there were uh, some Christians who wanted to take on the responsibility of uh, going through an active repentance process uh, of the racism of their own racism and the uh, systemic racism. And we're going to repent, not just in words, but we're going to do something about it. And uh, conservative Christians were very against that. And the, the other thing that I believe that it refers to are things like uh, 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 sexism and um, gay uh, homophobia. So they would say, "Look, the, the the sexism is not a sin. I don't. I do not repent of what you consider misogyny, and uh, you know things like discriminating against uh, gay people. That's not a sin, uh, and I will not apologize for discriminating against gay people. And that is that is literally what they are saying in that section. This is one thing I didn't understand and found a bit a bit odd. This this business about we're not repenting for the sins of our forefathers, but surely there's priors, isn't there, in the Bible about generational sin and you know lines of curses coming down generations and and so I mean I was in churches where you broke generational curses and you had to uh, you had to repent for things your forefathers had done which you couldn't possibly know, well, but you still had to have a horror stories about that. Yeah. not for this podcast. Oh, no, do. Give us a horror story. Give us a horror story. Oh, don't. Don't. Isn't isn't this Halloween? Oh, no, it's Christmas. That's the other Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. No, you know, know, when you're ill or whatever, it's because something happened in your past. I was related to the French, and they were a, uh, uh, you know, a rebellious... Society, okay, so well, I need you to don't have enough lifetime to repent for I'll tell you a horror story. <laughs> you, you can't repent for the French. Let me just tell you, you don't, you're not going to live long enough. <laughs> they, did the, they did their guillotining, you know, that was all kind of bad, and I, somehow I had some, some hand in it. I had no idea, but obviously that was all my, all my bad luck had been down to that. So, you know, we had to go through all those points to renounce it and, and repent from it. You're, you're paying for it with higher taxes. So, Matthew, my brother, give us a <laughs> yeah, horror story. All right, you can choose to you can choose to cut this if you if if you wish. You, um, you bet, Matthew. I'm going to go ahead and edit that. You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's a little bit personal, but it will cause you much amusement. So, um, in in one of the times of my life, there was I had, I had a, a lot going on. I was going through quite a lot of counselling, and. Um, I saw quite. I saw about half a dozen different Christian pastors as part of this whole experience. I don't think any of them consistently gave me anything great, and none of them all bonded together. But anyway, this particular one, I was at a at a conference, and and things came to a bit of a head, and so I went and saw this pastor who was there, and we chatted together. Anyway, um, during our chat, it um, became apparent that I was conceived before my parents were married. Um, which is a, a a great story. Immaculate in conception. Oh, it, it was it, it was set back. So, anyway, so before I'd even finished telling him this thing, which was hurting me, his Bible was out, <laughs> and he was at a verse which said something along the lines of, 
the sins of the fathers shall be passed on to the children and, and this kind of thing. Thank so you. he was on my knee. I was on my knees in tears because I needed help over this counselling thing, this issue that was bothering me. And he was making me confess my father's sin of copulation when what I needed was counselling over this issue. <laughs> no, brother, look, I am not laughing at your tears. I am He then said to me, when you go back home, the next time you see your father, you need to tell him, that you've confessed his sin and forgiven him for it. <laughs> was that was that a, a quality Kodak moment when you did that? <laughs> it, let's just say it wasn't the most glorious of father. So you confessed his sin, and you—I don't even know how to pull that apart. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm sorry. Yeah. I really am struggling. I, uh, I have some uh, I have some Christian university classes in my background, and I am struggling to find even a comparative religion to Christianity where that notion makes sense. So, let uh, me, Matthew, I am not. This is not ridiculing your story, by the way. Yeah. I, I simply don't. Story, know. Please ridicule the story as much as you like. It is all no. it deserves. Let me let no, me try I, to. I would not do that, but let, I don't know how to pull that apart. Let me I let me really add a don't. bit of serious to this, seriousness to this because here's here's I think the problem. It's not the theological issue of you know whether you're going to uh, do a repenting for someone else's sins or being baptized for the dead or anything like that. That's that's actually not the real issue here. The real issue is that the people behind this sort of statement will are are going a little bit further than that they're denying that these sins matter not not so much that took place but they don't they're denying the effects of the sins of their fathers and so what what really we should be repenting of all of us if i can use this biblical language because repent simply means to change and i would i would also add repent and repair the damage uh, because repentance without repair is a little bit empty too. What they are saying, though, is that their fathers uh, and forefathers didn't do anything that needs to be fixed, and and they they don't think that they need to do anything with the systems that have been uh, soiled by the the racism of the past. They're just fine with things the way they are. And I, I think that's the deeper message that they're giving. This is not, you know, they're not saying something theological here. Well, what I get out of Matthew's story, so when I, when I try to think about it theologically, it seems to me that that this person with the Bible is, is suggesting what, from a Christian perspective, would be a misapplication of substitutionary atonement. The idea that I could confess someone else's sins. And, and so I think there's a, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's in that person's head and I won't try to pull it apart any further than that. Well, it's something to do with, you know, you've allowed or they've allowed some sort of demonic oppression through this and cursing Mm. through it. And Mm. I think that's where it is. And and the confessing of it is recognizing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there was. 
That's right. It's recognizing there's been this this kind of demonic influence, and then you know, then you can cut it off. But 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 there's there's also something positive in that, I think. And I I know I'm being the contrarian (laughs) here. I. I'm sorry, but I'm not trying to be funny. Yeah, I've never been. I'm so glad I didn't have a mouthful of fear when you said that. Yeah, no. So the the positive part of it uh, is that you don't keep family secrets that are damaging, Um, and that's you know I I know something about that uh, on on a personal level and how that can play out. you know, so your your great grandfather did something that you know your father did, and you know you you got to keep that secret to keep the shame from your family, and you've you've got this dark place hidden away in you because because of the evil that someone else did that you were asked now to protect, and uh, so there is something to be said for being able to say, yeah, you know what. I confess that. Confession just means I I acknowledge it. I acknowledge that this thing happened and that this thing was bad and that I do not carry this forward and perpetuate it. So I, I think in that sense that is a good thing. part of it to carry it forward, right? I mean, I mean that's – so then there's just an, an atonement issue, if, even if it's not a substitutionary atonement issue. If – if you have some sin in your life that I'm aware of, I can't confess it. I mean, I can confess awareness of it, but that doesn't... Well, right, but I, I think it's a special thing with, with family because it becomes one of those things where I'm, I'm going to... I, I don't know, where, where the actions of a family member reflect on the rest of the family. And so by, by keeping that thing hidden... Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then you are in fact participating it to some degree. I mean, it, look. Let me put flesh on it. Let's say that you've got a, a family member, uh, you know, a, a sibling or parent who is a child molester. You know it. Everybody knows it in the family, but no one will speak up. No, no one will confess that, and thus continue to put other people in danger. And in doing so kind of participate and there is something healthy about saying you know what I'm not going to I'm not going to be in that cycle. So I agree with that. Look, I don't I don't have any uh I, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that we can share wrongs. That that some wrongs are big enough to to be spread across lots of people. So if I went out and uh, let's say I were embezzling uh funds from a business that we all belong to. Oh, I didn't know that you were just going to come out and confess that, but okay. No. Uh, now that we're talking about it. <laughs> I, I would like to point out that I am not actually in a business of any kind that's making any money. That's because uh, of all the embezzling, but uh, okay. But anyway, go ahead and finish your story. <laughs> so, so if I were embezzling money and um, all of you knew about it, and maybe one of you isn't a part of the company, right? So uh, Matthew is just a guy that can be the whistleblower, right? If he doesn't blow the whistle on me, uh, then surely he carries his own guilt for not stopping me. But he does not carry any portion of my guilt. Well, that's up to the courts to decide. 
I need to go back to Matthew's mother. I, because I, um, I get, I get that the pastor asked for you to confess your dad's sin, but w- what about your mum? I mean, she was a naughty, naughty lady as well. She did, <laughs> did, she, did she not have to, uh, to, to do some confessing as well, or was it just the man? Um, my memory of it is it was just the man. I mean, we're we're, we're going back a, a, a few years now, but. Um, yeah, I don't remember my mother coming into the conversation no. at all. It was it was mano to mano. Yeah. According to Paul, women are to be saved by childbearing. So your mom did her part. Uh-huh. She was just doing what she was told <laughs> by the man, you know. So the, the sin was clearly his. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Religion. All right. Religion. So we have um, we have sort of talked a lot about what social justice is. We've talked a lot about the the statement on social justice, where we find the problems in this statement. Uh, I think they're, I think they're numerous. I think they're pretty obvious. Uh, So let me throw this up for, uh, for discussion. How is it that after we all walked away from Christianity, we decided that some version of humanism was in fact a superior uh, a superior concept to this statement on social justice in the gospel. It's kind of the only show in town left um, in, in one sense. I mean, I, I don't want to say that that's the only thing promote, uh, supporting humanism, but frankly, if, if what you have is secular humanism and the Bible and you live your life by sola scriptorum, um, then you never, you didn't, you didn't look at secular humanism. So once you let go of scripture, and that was the only thing that you had before <laughs> secular humanism, is kind of the only thing left standing uh, to evaluate at that point. And so you, you have to begin to ask yourself, well, how do, how do I determine what is right and good and ethical? if I don't have this book telling me what it is. Okay, but, uh, all right, but I can't let you get away with it. I mean, it sounds good, right? But the obvious question for the Christian listener will be, okay, fine, but you left behind your faith. So David and I are in a a deeper conversation about what it means to lose faith, so I'm choosing my words carefully here to, to not get us off track. So you've left behind your faith, and you've discovered this thing called secular humanism. But surely Christianity is superior. If it, you know, somehow you stuck with secular humanism. So how did you determine, how did you not return to, to Christianity? Secular humanism had to provide something that was better than Christianity. Otherwise, you'd have returned to the superior system. Let me let me be clear about what I mean by secular humanism, because I don't think that I mean the same thing as what most people mean. I've never read a, a secular humanist document, so I don't know what secular humanism properly is. I don't sign Fair on enough. to a secular humanist creed. I don't know what I don't know what that would mean. So when I talk about secular humanism. I mostly mean that which is common sense based on your own best lights um, 
and that that tends to be the thing that secular humanists would agree with. So if if you ask yourself, well, what is what is the right thing to do for this person in this situation? It, and you and you consider that with your own best lights, that tends to be the secular humanist thing. So I am I'm really I'm really using it in a fairly generic term when I when I lost the Bible as a, a way of telling me what was right, I had to look within to my own humanity, and it turns out that my own humanity was uh pretty much in sync with other people's humanity when they were using their humanity and not the Bible. So that was a good correction. I will go all the way and say, when I said secular humanism, it was a placeholder for whatever you have in mind that is not Christianity. And that may not actually be secular humanism. So it's, it's fair to, uh, to, uh, for you to say that you're not a secular humanist if you're not or, or whatever. Right. But Presumably, we are all some kind of humanist because we're not goddesses or or whatever, right? So, Sarah, do you when you look at your interactions with the people around you, do you apply religious principles or do you apply something that is human centric? And if so, what do you find about your current values that is superior to your religious values of the past? Well, I mean, I think it's true. If, as you deconstruct you, um, from Christianity, you can have, be left with that idea that this, there's going to be this moral vacuum, and you're, you know, you still have these ideas that you're instantly going to become demon possessed and evil. But actually, you don't. It's. Um, I actually found it just easier to make better moral judgments. I mean. That didn't even make any sense. It was only the the gay issue is just not an issue. You know, you don't have to sit there thinking, gosh, these people are, you know, it's oh, well, it's okay if they're celibate, but they're not this, but they're same, you know, but you don't have to weigh all these things up. They're just people first. That's it. That's all that matters. Um, mm. It's it's so much easier to make a decision. And I just think words like human flourishing is, you know, we've all got a really good idea of what that means. Um, uh, we're going to apply it sometimes well sometimes not so well but um you know with i think it's i found it easier i think i found became a more compassionate less judgmental person and that's all i can i can say from experiencing of, of walking it out i mean even just small things watching a tv there was a uh, a film um where some lady had to walk around naked for a minute. It wasn't some dodgy film in, in any way. It was just an artistic thing, perfectly okay. But, right, right. You know, can in can the past, you come up with the name of that? Uh, <laughs> <I can't remember. laughs> it was a perfectly... In, oh, it might even be Bohem, no, Bohemian Rhapsody or something. Anyway. Blue but, the Warmest Colour or something. Yeah, it was. It was honestly. It was nothing. Nothing. It was just. Yeah, no, seamless. I understand. I'm making my Netflix uh, list right now. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, in the past, I'd have been like, "Oh, you know, what, what's, what's caused this young lady to be like this and to want to, you know, take her clothes off for her TV performances? You know, what sort of moral standing has she got? Whereas there, you just take it as a piece of art that it was part of the film and had to be. It was perfectly. It wasn't forced into the film. It was perfectly normal. It was. And it wasn't an issue and you don't have to be ashamed. She doesn't have to be ashamed about anything. And, and it was all fine. And it was just like, this is a lot easier. And you just aren't a judgmental douche. So I, I like it. Is there so, a difference between a, a woman doing that and a man doing that? Oh, I mean, the horns of the... Wow. Did you and say horns? Does it make, <laughs> and does it, make it, 
Does it make a difference if it's on film or if it's on stage? I know you're a performer, Matthew. What do you want to tell us? (laughs) (laughs) The photos are on Facebook if you can find me. So so you're doing HMS Pinafore, right? (laughs) 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 Okay, look, look, I think that's a good question, actually. Are we willing, as skeptics, to say that there is no difference between a male human exercising his sexual preferences in a consensual adult environment so that no one thinks that I'm an atheist eating babies or condoning inappropriate relationships with children. Are we willing to say, as four skeptics, that a male conducting his relationships is identical to a female conducting her relationships. I don't understand. I don't understand how I would find controversy in that at all. So I may be misunderstanding the question. Yes. Yes. You can walk around naked if you want to. I mean, I guess if, if that's what you're getting at, Well, no, 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 no. The the question, the question I think is actually an emotional one, right? Do you, do you have an emotional aversion to a woman having multiple sexual partners where you don't have an aversion to a man having multiple sexual partners. I don't, I don't really think about it, truth be told, because as a Christian, what I would have had to consider was, oh, these people are sinners, and, and that put them in a different category. They're sinning. They're offending God. That means they're mm-hmm. offending me. They're, they're going to go to hell. I have to think a certain way about this. As a exactly. you know, as as uh, Sarah said, I don't have to think anyway about it now. I I just don't care. It it does not it, it doesn't come up to a, a, an ethical decision for me. So I mean, just answering. Yeah, but I the, think the language of society differentiates between the two genders behaving sexually. Possibly, which I think is what some of the movements to to eradicate that is all yeah. about. But yeah. um, I mean, as you say, like David says, it, I just you don't think about it. You don't you don't take up a brain real estate worrying about these these things anymore. They're not they're not of a concern. You know that the, the entire society isn't going to collapse because one lady decided to take her clothes off for a a, a, a scene in a movie. I mean, it's. It's that it's taking away that whole end of the earth, the end of the world anyway. Just generally gives you a yeah, much more I've, positive vision of of the world. You're not you're not expecting Armageddon uh, any minute now, so um, that takes the pressure off. But generally, yeah, I just think you spend less time worrying about all these things and just get on and and make uh, have good experiences in the world with good people and and that's it. I, and you don't really I, that's, it's really so I, much easier. I have a I have a memory of having a conversation with somebody I worked with years ago. He categorically wasn't a Christian, although I was at the time. And we were talking about dating and, and stuff like that. And, you know, usual warnings about the reliability of human memory, etc. But I'm pretty sure that he said something along the lines of if he started going out with a woman and he knew that she'd had a partner previously, he'd want there to be a month to have passed between her having relations with her previous boyfriend and, and their first interaction. Mm-hmm. Wow. Matthew, did that actually get to the heart of your question? The, the, the question about men versus women and stage versus screen? Did that 
I, I don't know, but is it really important in the context of this this document? You know, it's a bit it's a bit of a meander. I, I don't Ooh. feel strongly enough that I'm going to sulk if it's not answered to everybody's okay. satisfaction. Well, I mean, so this then, is some of that secular philosophy that's seeping into the church because you know they yeah, would they nice. would actually say that many Christians. Many so-called Christians would answer the questions the same way we would, and that that greatly exercises them. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. So, well, I, I've got okay. I've got a story, another story then, which is vaguely related to the one I previously told, but it's got a much different um, reaction. Um, my and it, this is about how not just society, but how our experience in life does inform how. Christians behave and view things and I think life experience shouldn't be undermined and I think this document is too hard line and it completely skips over that thing my youngest brother also got into a situation where um, there was a child on the way and my grandparents. Wait, I'm sorry. Parents. Wait. Wait a minute. <laughs> what is? Okay. What is? Oh, you know, I've I've heard people go yada 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 and move past a scene, but th- <laughs> well, I can't even I can't even make the noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's the one. Is that that's because he didn't he did, hadn't confessed your dad's generational sin, and therefore that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. He hadn't had the benefit of ridiculous, embarrassing situations. So, so was this his child that was on the way, or is he confessing for someone else? Well, according to the girl, it was his child. But, yeah, well, that's not really oh. where I want to go with this story. <laughs> I mean, just a lot was covered with that whistle. And I just, I, there was an episode of Seinfeld um, that comes to mind. But anyway. <laughs> okay, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, so the news comes out, big family drama, conversation, etc. And um, my grandparents, who bless them, they're, they're getting on a bit. This is my mother's parents. They are Plymouth Brethren, which is a quite, quite strict uh, church uh, in the UK, probably Calvinist, mm. uh, of that, that kind of thing. Um, and the very first thing my grandmother... Uh, said to my brother was don't feel like you've got to marry her and my mother mm. it was like her neck snapped in the omen it was like what the <laughs> f- did you just say <laughs> did she whistle and, too <laughs> and um and i related this uh back to my father and my father gave exactly the same reaction and of course then i put two and two together the reason why my parents got married was because I was on the way and it was because my mother's parents said, well, you've done the deed, you need to get married. And then 20 odd years later, my youngest brother is in a similar situation and they're going, don't feel like you have to get married. <laughs> That's progression though. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, Matthew, let me let me ask you the same question that I asked Sarah and Dave, because I know that we can all sense it. We're getting close to a point where we're going to wrap up. So why for you? We, we saw a progression in that last story. Why for you are the values that you practice today superior to the Christian values that you practiced in the past? I'm not entirely sure that the values that I practiced in the past are any different. There are some mm-hmm. things... I no longer believe to be 
um, soul-destroyingly evil, like, for example, homosexuality. But I, it's, it's not on the list of things that I practice, but that's out of choice, not out of any moral outrage. Mm. Um, but my process when I was deconverting, I did address the whole moral thing because I'd been fed on this um, utter myth that atheists are atheists because they just want to sin, they want to live the life of debauchery, they want to do what they want to do, they know God really exists, they just hate God. And, mm. and that was the mindset that I was extracting myself from, and which is why my deconversion experience was so protracted and, and painful and torturous. And as I was realizing the, where I was coming to, I started asking myself these questions. You know, well, how, can, how am I going to behave now? Am I free to do this? Mm-hmm. Can I do that? And as I addressed these things, I, I started to realize that I'm not actually going to behave any different. Mm-hmm. The things that I don't want to do, I'm still not going to do. The things that I'm not inclined to, to, to do, steal a pencil from work or, or, or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. I'm still not going to do it because I've just got no inclination to do it. And it was just that slow appreciation that who I am, what I do, what I like, what, what I want to do, isn't because I'm a Christian, isn't because I read the Bible every day. It's because of who I am. It's because of what I am. And it's encoded in my DNA. And it was that realization, it was liberating. And I tell you the relief I felt as well when I realized that, that I wasn't going to turn into this foaming monster who, had, who babies had to be protected from. Mm. You know, the only thing that really changed was my... my um, judgmental attitude towards other people who did mm-hmm. things that I didn't approve of. That was what how I behaved didn't really change in all honesty. I had the exact same process uh, Matthew. I just I appreciate you saying uh, all of that out loud because I, Andrew and I were in conversation about this years and years ago um, just you know during the time of the change and um I was telling him, you know, I don't, I don't think that I will actually change <laughs> at all because it's not like there are dastardly deeds that I want to commit, and I'm just, <laughs> just waiting to get out of this Christianity thing and I can commit them. It, you know, as far as the life of debauchery um, that that you sink into once you become an atheist, I I never found the the list. Um, how do you, where do I sign up for that? I don't have you for it to find me. Yeah. I mean, what is this life of debauchery that, you know, you become an atheist and then every, it's, it, what, once that happens and what people start throwing themselves at you, I don't, that, that has not happened for me. Um, you apparently dis- yourself, David. I well, saw a nudie lady. I saw a nudie lady on telly the other day, as I told you. Well, okay. So the, the debauchery club now includes what? What? Watching PG movies. So, okay. <laughs> hey, David, I'd like to follow up on that because I this is this is great fun, but I think we put the finger on how it changed for me. The debauchery club is no longer a debauchery club. No. So, so here's what I mean. I mean, we're having fun with it, right? And, and, the audience, and, and our listeners should too. But here's, here's what I mean. If any two of you came to me right now and said, by the way, we're in a new relationship. 
I would be just as happy for you, no matter which two of you it were, as I would be any other combination. And if you came to me, uh, Matthew, for instance, if you, if you came to me and said that you had sent your DNA off to 23andMe, and you suddenly discovered that most of your DNA actually was contributed from the Middle East, and your group of friends found out that actually you're a Middle Easterner and they have started treating you differently because uh, somehow uh, there's some implication about Islam or whatever the silly notions are, right? I would be able to think of you exactly as I should, as someone who is being victimized by his social circumstances. And I would stand for you without hesitation because I wouldn't have a God creed between you and me. Okay. But why, why are we coming to you with this stuff? I mean, <laughs> so, oh, well, I didn't say that was necessarily a good idea. I can't work that out. Everybody trusts an American accent. I mean, Come on, uh, <laughs> and a Southern American one at that. Yeah. Our, our, um, our wrongs are well documented. Look, I was about to say, I'm so glad Andrew said that because this English accent is so hard to maintain. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm clipping all my words expressly. <laughs> but that to me is the superiority of my secular view versus my religious view in the past, that I can stand with the people close to me and feel for them what they feel. Acknowledge what they say, right? So I can allow them to self-report. And I don't have to have any artificial criticism. Mm. We can just be human together. Yeah. And yeah. that, to me, is the superiority Debauchery. of my view versus my Christian view in the past. Now, some people may say, I just had the wrong view. Okay, fine. But I had to leave Christianity to get to where I am today. Mm, exactly. I agree. Debauchery is not offending some imaginary god's uh, sensibilities about in, in hangups about sexuality. Debauchery for me is treating other humans badly, and I I didn't want to do that as a Christian, although I think I did because of my beliefs. I certainly don't want to do it now. There there isn't an evil thing that I want to do that I am restrained from doing, and I simply don't want to do them. So I don't, mm. this, this idea that somehow, you know, it's Christianity that's restraining you and making you a better human, that was not the case. Once the restraints of Christianity lifted, I found that I was able to be a better human to more people without judgment. Is that because in society there's still kind of a social currency in having a bit of integrity? You know, it's not, oh, we don't want to, we, we, I don't know, most people would want to be seen as living in a way that's got a bit of integrity. Is that something mm, we've I mean, been, it we've could got... be. I think it's probably a very natural thing that I don't want to be considered an ass. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, that I am somehow greater evolved than anyone else. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's very, uh, a very natural thing, but it under Christianity, you see, I, I didn't mind being an ass. I was an mm. ass for Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I would in fact, get up, get up in your business. 
and, mm. yeah. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and judge you, convict you of sin, give you the hard love of Jesus. Um, and, and I just, I have, I don't see any need to do that now. I didn't enjoy that aspect of life at that time. I did it, but I didn't enjoy it. Um, it is, it is futile. And there, there are just very few things that I see other people doing that requires me to get involved and correct them. You know, most mistakes that people make are normal human, uh, mistakes that we all make and we learn from and grow out of. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't consider not, that sin. I don't consider it debauchery. I don't. I, it's just human, and you know, have the have the best human right of your life. Exactly, and and also, uh, most of it can be uh, sorted out by or resolved by education. Really, just people being more aware and more informed. And I have I've yet to found a think of a scenario where education doesn't help bring about better human flourishing. I just I just find it. I find that answers most things, even yeah. I you think know, that's the truth, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. You very, know, if, very few times have I said, "Ah, you ruined him. You gave him education, messed it up." Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mm. happen. Well, except for people coming out of Christianity, because that was clearly the fault of education in my case. Mm. So let's let's ruined. let's close this one, uh, all folks. Uh, final words, final two minutes. Are we ready for that? Final, mm-hmm. your final speech. So for, for me, uh, I'll just kick us off. This, this thing is about social just, justice, and it's about two different views of social justice. More to the point, I think it's about a, a war between Christians on how they're going to define their movement uh, for for the next twenty years, and they're they're in a battle for their religious soul there. But beyond that, it's it, it's about social justice, and um, I think that as uh, atheists, agnostics, um, skeptics, w- whatever label you prefer, uh, I think we've got a little bit of an advantage. And I know that I have an advantage uh, when it comes to social justice over what I had as a Christian. Because once again, I can think about justice from the point of view of humans. And before, I had to think of justice from the point of view of God. What does God consider justice? That's a very different thing than what humans consider justice. And what, what does God consider good? For God, good is is giving uh, him glory and doing everything for his glory. And, you know, part of this statement, I don't know if it's in the statement or one of the supporting, um, sermons now, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's written in my uh, blog post, but part of the statement is that God, you know, the gospel isn't about, uh, making you happier, healthier, wiser, or, you know, all of those things. Well, you know what? I'm, I no longer care what the gospel is about. <laughs> And and so for me, it is about being uh, happier, healthier, wiser, uh, creating a better humanity for is the the best possible humanity for the most peace people possible, uh, and that is that is the ideal state of uh, social justice to me, and that gives me a, a clear mark to fight for. I'm not fighting for social justice under God. I'm fighting for social justice under humanity. And I think at the end of the day, that's the only kind that matters. Very good. Dave, you started us. Who are you handing the mic to? Uh, whoever's man enough to take it. 
It sounds like it sounds like it's for lady for a job for a lady. Today. <laughs> so I'll my feelings. Yeah, my feelings are, and I'm going back to the social justice statement. Generally, I think it is um, an attempt to redefine things that are obvious. I think it's utterly unnecessary and pointless. Um, I think I, I don't care for the statement and I don't care about the statement in general. I think it's saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. It's outdated before it's even launched and it's landing, frankly, like a damp squib anyway. I don't think it matters. I don't think it should be given much limelight. Uh, and I think it's the, da- the last death rattles of white, privileged, heteronormative cisgender males. There you go. <laughs> That's it, my feeling. A damp I think. squib? Yeah. And, I, now uh, you see that sounds like debauchery. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the only thing that should bother Christians about LGBTQI people and things like the trans sector is is things like their suicide rate. You know, it's a condition that has a pretty high chance of killing you, and that's the only thing that should bother them. That is it. Nothing else. They're people first, and they suffer a lot, and that's literally all you need to know. And everything else, it just doesn't matter. Excellent. Um, Matthew, if you don't mind, I'll go so that you can take us out. Oh, I'm fine. Cool. All right. Great. Uh, I I think it's appropriate for the uh, for the host of Ask an Atheist Anything to take us out on this particular uh, on this particular show. So I'll go now and leave it to you. Um, All I will say is. If you're a Christian and you think the golden rule means anything then you need to disavow every implication of the statement on social justice and the gospel. There's absolutely nothing about that statement that is friendly to the people around you. There is nothing about that statement where you can practice doing unto others what you would have them do unto you. And if you think you can, if you think that there are no dog whistles in that statement, if you think that statement is... Uh, is contrived and written by those people that have your best interest in heart, then I encourage you to watch the videos. Because whatever you think is in that video, uh, in that statement, is not what are in the videos. And we don't need a God between any two people in this world. We've had that for thousands of years. And look where we are. So if I could give us, if I could give every one of us a holiday gift, it is, let's be human together. So Matthew, you've got the last word. And uh, since you're in the Ask an Atheist Anything guy, please make sure that your final uh, statement includes the answer to the question, what is a damp squib? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and by the way, please visit Skeptics and Seekers at WordPress.com. That's where David is. And you should subscribe to Skeptics and Seekers, by the way. Uh, and okay, David, sorry, I, I had to I had to plug S and S because it's great property. Great. I appreciate that. And I will also return the favor by uh, plugging ah. uh, Ask an Atheist Anything. I have no idea where it's found. Look it up on Google. I don't know. Uh, and it's, maybe maybe you can tell us where to find we, that in your uh, uh, Reason Press. Dot <laughs> Reason Press, that's it. <laughs> Somewhere. It's on the internet. Just look it up. It's in the tubes. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, wherever you 
wherever you get your your podcast. So this document, I love and I loathe this document in in equal measure. I loathe it because it is the the claims, the affirmations and denials are bite-sized, but not bite-sized in a good way. Uh, they don't. They contain short, pithy statements, which don't really mean anything because they're too generalistic, and you have to expound them to a ridiculous level to get anything out of them. At which point, they've lost any meaning. I love this document because it has pitted Christians against Christians. Christians have come up defending it, and Christians have come up condemning it and criticizing it. And if you want any evidence or if you've got any doubt over the authenticity of the Bible in terms of something that you can live your life by, you can see it in Christians over fighting over what it says about what is a good way to act your life. That should be all you need to know uh, about this. Uh, I had something else to say and it's gone in me trying to be clever and intelligent. So on, (laughs) on that note, Thank you so much, guys. Say good night to everybody. It was a privilege. Thank you. Good night. And a damp squib is a firework that fails fails to go off due to wetting. That's Uh, not this episode. Well, I'll be honest with you. There's there's so much euphemism uh, possibility in that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there is. It's it's just something that's less impressive than expected, which is what their statement was. I think they thought it was going to go off with a bang, and it's just flopped. There you go. That's what it means. I liked liked what it meant in my mind uh, earlier. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go with that. Okay. Wow. Happy, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Yeah, good night, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. Have a happy weekend. <laughs>